morning again. So today we're in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and we cover this very interesting passage. Faith without works is dead. This has been misunderstood, taken out of context, misquoted, to mean that you don't have to have faith, you just got to do good works. But it doesn't say that at all. So I hope to try and fully explain this today, as best I can, what James is talking about when he says faith without works is dead. So I'll just pray, then we'll start. Father, thank you for this really awesome passage. And when taken in context and when compared with the rest of Scripture, it's very encouraging, but also very challenging. So Lord, give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you say in John that your word is truth. Lead us into that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, we continue our journey through the book of James in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and we're going to learn about two kinds of works and two kinds of faith. Firstly, there is the faith without works. This is a dead kind of faith. So I'm giving the end at the start, right? I'm giving you the conclusion at the start so you can see how we get there. This is a dead kind of faith, a faith that cannot save and it produces dead works. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about dead works, and we'll read those verses in a minute. And what it's referring to is legalism or religion. Now, the other kind of faith is a living faith, a saving faith, which produces naturally, spontaneously, living works, which are the fruit of a changed, regenerated, or transformed heart. Now, when you read a passage, you must take into account the context of the book. So what's the context of the book of James and also the book of Hebrews? Well, who are they written to? They're written to Jews, yeah? The temple was still standing. They were doing their rituals and things like that. Some of them were obviously not in Jerusalem. A lot of them weren't. But they were tempted to go back into religion, into dead works. Okay? dead works. James and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, are both seeking to turn people back to a true, authentic, or genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, James talks about dead faith, and the writer to the Hebrews talks about dead works. If you put them together, they're actually talking about the same thing. James is referring to the cause, which is dead faith, a person without true or saving faith, and Hebrews talks about the effect or describes the effect. Dead works, religious works done by the power or effort of the sinful nature, by our own effort, you see. So a dead faith produces dead works. So Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, just to, to show you where this dead works comes from, it says, Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Remember, it's talking about those who are religious. Jews who are religious, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's the living faith. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from 
dead works to serve the living God. So we need to turn from religious works to spirit-led works, if I can call it that. Works that are motivated by love and gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So I'll summarize that. There are two kinds of works and two kinds of faith. Firstly, there is a faith without works. This is a dead kind of faith, a faith that cannot save, and it produces dead works or religion, man's effort. Then secondly, there is a living faith, a saving faith, which produces living works, which are the fruit of a changed, regenerated, or transformed heart. The works follow the salvation, naturally. And the motive for these living works, if I can call them that, as opposed to dead works, is our love for Christ and our appreciation, our gratitude for what he's already done for us. It's really important that we see this connection between the two kinds of faith and the two kinds of works because this helps us to understand what this passage is really saying and it hopefully won't be taken out of context. All right. So let's read our passage for today. It's James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, <laughs> be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. See, there's two different types of faith there, one without works and one with works. 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead, or the kind of faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, the kind of faith that doesn't produce works. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So I'm going to tell you a story which is going to hopefully help to understand this whole concept. All right. So imagine that, you know, I'm in high school and I'm playing football. I'm a football player and every Saturday I go down to the footy oval and I play football. Now, I'm a football player, so what do I wear? What shirt do I wear? A football shirt, yeah? Okay, so everyone knows that I'm a football player because I wear a football shirt. Now, I've been playing football from a young age. It's all I know. It's the only sport that I knew when I was growing up. 
Now, one day, the hockey coach invites me to play on the hockey team. And he says, I'm going to pay all your expenses. It's free. Absolutely free. All your equipment, all your training costs, everything is paid for. All your fees, etc. is all paid for. So it's going to cost me nothing to play hockey. However, I must remove my football shirt before I put on my hockey shirt. And I need to turn up to the hockey games, which means that I can't go to the football games. And the hockey coach makes this very clear. He tells me that to be a hockey player, I must be first willing to give up football. Now, I choose not to play hockey because I love football too much. Another man later tells me that I can play both hockey and football. All I have to do is put on the hockey shirt that he is offering me and put it over my football shirt and tell everybody that I play hockey. Now, I love this idea because the hockey team is really awesome and I know that they're going to win. Now, I never actually meet the hockey team or the hockey coach because guess what I'm doing on Saturdays? I'm playing football with my hockey shirt on. Weird, eh? Now, at the end of the hockey season, the hockey team does win like I thought they would. And I go to the awards night where they hand out the medals, you know, for best player and all those kind of things. And each person on the team gets their medal for winning the grand final. And what do you think happens? The coach and the players look at me and they say, who are you? What are you doing here? And why are you wearing a fake hockey shirt over the top of your football shirt? We don't want you here. There's no pretenders allowed here. Going, only real hockey players. Off you go. (laughs) So, keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that story at the end. So, right we're going to do now is have a look at verses 14 to 17, and this part I've called dead faith versus living faith, or saving faith. So, James 2, 14 to 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So looking at verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? What's he saying? Well, James is saying that it's impossible that someone could have genuine saving faith with no good works to show for it. Someone may say that they have faith, but not demonstrate any good works. And James asked, can this kind of faith save him? So it's not saying, can faith save him? We are all saved by faith, but it's got to be a faith in Christ. It's got to be a living faith. He's talking about the kind of faith that doesn't have works. And the answer is that this kind of faith, this faith without works, cannot save you. Because it's not based on true repentance, you see. And David Guzik says concerning can faith save him, James did not contradict the Apostle Paul, who insisted that we are saved not of works, Ephesians 2.9. James merely 
clarifies for us the kind of faith that saves. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. But saving faith will have works that accompany it. As the saying goes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. (laughs) It has good works with it. So the consequence of repentance and faith in Christ is that we have a new life with new desires, a new heart, a new creation, and we just can't help but produce the fruit of good works, of living life that pleases God. Now, we often quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which talk about being saved by grace through faith alone and not of works. But what's the context of those verses? What's the next verse? What's verse 10 say? Well, let's read them together. And you're going to find this is very similar to what we're reading in the book of James. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now most of the time we just stop there, right? That's what we memorize, that's what we stop. But verse 10 finishes the thought, and I've put this in italics for emphasis. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, we're created for good works. The consequence, or the natural result of saving faith, of being saved by grace through faith, is that we will produce good works. As an apple tree produces apples, so a true Christian, one who has been regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit, and has a new heart with new desires, will produce the fruit of righteous living and good deeds. Another example of this is Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. It says this, Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Saviour revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Now, if we stop there, we see the word mercy, we see the word grace, we see the word kindness, we see the word love, yeah? It's all about the goodness of God toward us. And salvation. It's fantastic. What does verse 8 say? This is a trustworthy saying. So what he's been saying about the grace of God, the mercy of God, is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these teachings. So Paul is telling Titus, insist on these teachings about being saved by grace through faith, that it's all because of God's mercy, it's not because of what we've done. Why? So that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. What's the result of true salvation? It's good works. So, The point here is very clear. A true, genuine, born-again believer will not devote themselves to doing good works because they must 
or have to, or they got to, but because they get to, because they want to. And I just want to repeat what Paul says in verse 8. Paul tells Titus to emphasize that we are saved only because of God's grace and mercy, that we are completely undeserving of this lavish gift called salvation and redemption. Why? So we will love God and therefore obey him with an attitude of gratitude. That's how it works. And that's the structure of most of the epistles. The first part of the letter or the epistle tells us all about the wonderful things that God has done for us, with the second part detailing our response to God's goodness, his love for us. So people say that James is a hard book to understand because it says that we are saved by faith and works. But I think that if we read the scripture in context, and if we're honest with ourselves, we need to understand or acknowledge that true saving faith will always be accompanied by what? Good works. Okay? Works that please the Father. Works that are consistent with the nature of God. Not to earn favor with God, but to demonstrate gratitude to God. Now, Moving down a bit to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, again in the epistles. What does I say they do? They spend the first part of the epistle talking about what God has done for us and then goes into our response, our responsibility. In Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters describing what God has done for us our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. He's emphasizing God's amazing love and grace and mercy shown to us. And then he says in Romans 12.1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. I plead with you to give your bodies to God. In other words, to serve God. Why? Because of all he has done for you. If you're in the New King James, it's your reasonable, rational, or logical service. And then Paul continues in Romans 12 1, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. How? With an attitude of gratitude, with an attitude of service, which is not, I'm doing this, so now God owes me, I'm earning God's favor. No. I'm doing this because God's done so much for me and I love him and I want to please him. So Romans 12, 1 like Titus 3, 8 is another clear teaching as to our correct motivation to obey Christ. The living works, yeah? Not the dead works, the religiosity. It must be because of all he has done for you. Now, our walk with God can be summarized as follows. The more I'm in the word of God, the more I know God. The more I know God, the more I love God. The more I love God, the more I want to obey God. The more I obey God, the more I walk in agreement or abide with God. The more I abide in Christ, the more fruit I will produce. And that's the fruit of the Spirit and also righteous living and good works. And the more fruit I produce, the more glory I bring to God, which is my purpose in life. That's where contentment and satisfaction comes from. So, 
Last week we talked about the law of liberty in chapter 2 verse 12 in James. And we are free to obey or not obey as Christians. Now, why doesn't God force us to obey him? Because it wouldn't be out of love, would it? He's seeking a love relationship. God wants us to follow him because we want to and not with a grudging, forced, unwilling, resentful, legalistic and ungrateful attitude. So, if we're not obeying God with a genuine, loving attitude which we're grateful to God for what he's done for us, when we serve him with any other attitude, it's grievous to him, it's offensive to him. And what does it result in? Legalism. Yeah? I begin to think that God now owes me because of all the wonderful things that I have done for him (laughs) and all those massive and costly sacrifices that I have made for him. No. What does the Bible say about that? God is no man's debtor. And now verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in verse 14, what did James say? He said, Can this kind of faith save? Can this faith save? This faith, yeah? This kind of faith save. And then he gives this example of someone who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. Someone who lives a life of good words but without good works. And then James comes to the very blunt and hard conclusion in verse 17 that this kind of faith is dead. He says in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, this kind of faith that doesn't have works, is dead. It's fake. It's not genuine. It's not a saving faith. This kind of faith that does not produce good works, that are motivated by a grateful heart, is a dead faith. And this kind of faith will not profit you. It won't save you. A commentator called Paul says, He does not say, Faith is dead without works, lest it should be thought that works were the cause of the life of faith. But faith without works is dead. Implying that works are the effects and signs or the fruit of the life of faith. So it's the result. It comes after. Now, the opposite of a dead faith is a living faith. A real faith that is genuine and life-changing. Now, true faith always results in action and change. Now, David Guzik's got a list of descriptions of what saving faith looks like. So I'm just going to read them out. I think it's quite helpful. What does living faith look like? How can you tell the difference between a living faith and a dead faith? Living works and dead works. So, it is a faith that looks not to self, but to Jesus Christ. It is a faith that agrees with God's word, both inwardly and with words. It is a faith that in itself is not a work that deserves reward from God. It is faith grounded in what Jesus did on the cross and by the empty tomb. It is faith that will naturally be expressed in repentance and good works. It is a faith that may sometimes doubt, yet the doubts are not bigger than the faith, nor are they more permanent than the faith. This faith can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It is a faith 
that wants others to come to the same faith. It is a faith that says more than Lord, Lord, as in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 It is a faith that not only hears the word of God, but does it, as in Matthew seven twenty-four to 27 Now, there's an application here for believers. We have living faith, but, you know, the tendency is, and we do it, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for these people in foreign countries and people who are suffering, but what are we doing? <laughs> it's kind of convicted me here. Go forth and be full, be blessed and be warm. But we don't give them any clothes, we don't give them any food. We're not supporting them financially. It's like, okay, we're praying, but is God leading us to do? And prayer is not a substitute for action. So sometimes we can hide behind prayer and not actually help the person in need. So I'm not saying we can help everybody. Okay, don't get me wrong. We can't help everybody. But when God does put something on our heart and we're praying for them, there might come a time when God says, I want you to actually do something concrete for that person. All right, verses 18 and 19, I've called this section, A Dead Faith Has No Works. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, they have no faith, right? They only have works. And James says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I've likened this to the wind, all right? You can't see the wind. I'm looking outside now and I see the trees blowing you know, swaying back and forth. I know the wind is there. I can't see your faith, you can't see my faith, but we can see the effects of our faith by what we do, how we live our lives. Are we loving other people with the love of Christ? Are we a servant to other people? Are we demonstrating mercy to other people, giving mercy to other people? So if we see someone living out their Christian walk, then we know that they have faith. Just like we know the wind is blowing because the trees are moving. And the opposite is also true. Verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So James here gives an obvious example of those with dead faith, a faith that does not save. It's the demons. They believe in God. But it does them no good. They believe in his existence. They believe in his deity. They believe the Bible. They know the Bible better than us. But it does them no good. It doesn't change their behavior or their thinking towards God. The demons, the fallen angels, are just like the false convert or the unsaved person. They have never repented. Now we move on to verses 20 to 24, and these are examples of living faith. The faith of Abraham and Rahab, demonstrated by their works. So James has given some examples of dead faith, and now he's giving some examples of living faith, resulting in living works. So starting at verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? 
Notice that there. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. (laughs) This is one of those verses where you can easily take it out of context. The Bible says, a man is justified by works. But if you finish the sentence, and it says, and not by faith only. So faith comes first and the works follow. So we're justified by works in the sense that the works prove that we have the faith there initially. And then in verse 20, faith without works is dead. He says it again. He says it three times. This is the second time. So, so far, James has demonstrated that a faith that is not accompanied by works is a dead faith that cannot save. Now, 21 and 22, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? So, you remember what Abraham did? What God called Abraham to do? Abraham waited 25 years for his promised son, Isaac, the one through whom the Messiah was going to come. Now what happened? Isaac. He's, you know, around 30 years old. And God then tells him to sacrifice his son. That means to kill him on the altar. Abraham says, no problems. We don't know what his emotions were, but we know that he believed that God's promise would come to effect. God would not break his promise. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead if necessary. Abraham's desire to please God was so complete and so ingrained that he had already decided to go through with sacrificing Isaac, his promised child, the child that he loved, even before they started the three-day hike. So, you know, read this in Genesis 22. I don't have time now, but it's a great account of living faith leading to and resulting in living works. This is a clear demonstration that Abraham loved God more than the blessings that God gave. Abraham's faith was demonstrated to be a true or genuine faith by his works. The faith was already there, and the works just demonstrated it was true. Verse 21 also says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, this is interesting. When was Abraham saved or justified? When was he declared righteous before God? Well, it was a long time before this. Isaac is now 30-something years old. He had to wait, you know, 25 years for Isaac to be born. And sometime in that waiting time, There was Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and God gives Abraham some promises. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And we're going to read it soon in verse 23. James quotes this very same verse. James understands that Abraham was declared righteous only through belief 
Okay? He's not contradicting the scriptures. He's including it here. And other scriptures that talk about how we are saved, and it's not by works, it's only through faith and repentance, is uh, Mark one fifteen and John 6.28-29. We only have to repent and believe. We don't have to do any works to earn our salvation. So, what does it mean in verse 21 when it says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Simply that Abraham's faith was real and not fake or dead. Abraham's obedience to God demonstrated that his faith was real. It's a living faith. That he already had this living faith. He was already justified. And the context shows this because it says in verse 22 that Abraham's faith was working together with his works. So he had the faith and it's working with his works and by his works his faith was made perfect. So overall the context clearly shows that James is not saying that the reason Abraham was saved was because he did this good work, he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but rather the sacrifice demonstrated that he had a saving faith, that his faith was genuine. And verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So again, we see that James is not saying that we are saved by only doing good works. The works are always connected to and are a demonstration of or proof of a living faith. So that section in verse 24 there, you see that a man is justified by a faith that works and not by a faith without works, not by faith only. The two types of faith. So a person is saved by faith that produces good works, but not by faith only, not the kind of faith that does not produce good works, that produces no good fruit. So we talked about at the very start, the two kinds of faith and the two kinds of works. Now, James has already said, faith without works is dead. Again, faith alone, a dead kind of faith without any works will not save you. What we need to be saved is a living faith, a faith that works, a saving faith that results in them becoming a new creation in Christ if they're going to be accepted by God. And David Guzik says, works must accompany a genuine faith because a genuine faith is always connected with regeneration, being born again, becoming a new creation in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If there is no evidence of a new life, then there was no genuine saving faith and Charles Spurgeon is reported to have said the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul now think about Abraham for a sec if he didn't have a genuine faith would he have been willing to sacrifice Isaac would he have gone through with that no there's no way he couldn't have done it but because he had a changed heart, a new nature, I'm not saying it was easy for him, but it was possible, and he did it with the right heart, with the right motive. And in verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Remember the, uh, the spies? <laughs> I'm going to quote from David Guzik here. Rahab demonstrated 
her trust in the God of Israel by hiding the spies and seeking salvation from their God. You find that in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Her faith was shown to be living faith because it did something. Her belief in the God of Israel would not have saved her if she had not done something with that faith. The lesson from Abraham is clear. If we believe in God, we will do what he tells us to do. The lesson from Rahab is also clear. If we believe in God, we will help his people, even when it costs us something. End of quote. And then verse 26, For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So, an obvious analogy that James uses to seal his argument here, once the spirit has left the body, the body is dead. It's only a corpse. If I have a heart attack now and fall down dead in front of you, I hope I don't. But, you know, for your sake, good for me. <laughs> but if it happens, guess where I am? I'm up there, my spirit and soul. My body's just a corpse now. It's nothing. It's dead. And that's what James is saying. Faith without works is like a dead corpse faith. It has no spirit. Burdick comments, Therefore, if no deeds are forthcoming, it is proof that the professed faith is dead. Notice that James does not deny that it is faith. He simply indicates that it is not the right kind of faith. It is not living faith, nor can it save. Calvin says, Man is not justified by faith alone, that is, by a bare and empty knowledge of God. He is justified by works, that is, his righteousness is known and proved by its fruits. So when it says we're justified by our good works, it's talking about our good works demonstrate that we have a saving faith. And another example which helps us to understand this is baptism. When you're baptized, you're not saved because you're baptized. Baptized means it's a sign, it's a statement that you're making that God has already changed me. I'm already saved and I'm living my life for God from now on. I have repented, I have changed. And that's exactly what it is with true living faith. We have the faith and then it works out these good works. Now, true and false conversion. Now we come to the application for today. Why is James being so dogmatic? Three times he says, faith without works is dead. This kind of faith that doesn't have works is a dead faith. Think about it this way. The kind of faith that doesn't have works is a dead faith. It will not save you. Well, you know what? This is not a surprise. If we go back to James chapter 1, I'll read some verses in James chapter 1. I'll start at verse 22 and then go to 26 and 27. He said, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What's he saying? If you're not doing it, then you're not sincere, yeah? If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And then he goes on to the practical aspect, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world that is pure. Now, I want to go back to my story at the start. Do you remember the story, the hockey and the football? 
Remember I deceived myself into thinking that I was really a hockey player when I was still a football player? Remember that? Do you remember the consequences of this deception? I was kicked out of the awards night. How embarrassing. All right. That deceiver that told me that I could be a hockey player without actually playing hockey, he was my best friend for a while. He made my life good. I felt good about myself. But at the same time, I thought the hockey coach was a bit harsh. I thought he was quite demanding, you know, insisting that I give up football to play hockey. Who's who to tell me what to do, you know? But eventually I soon realized the truth. But it was too late, yeah? I had rejected the truth and I believed the lie. And the point here that nothing has changed. There were false converts in Jesus' day and one of the purposes of the book of James, at least a main application, is to show the difference between a true convert and a false convert, a living faith and a dead faith. And what did Jesus say about false converts when he was around? He was on this earth. He said in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So I'm just going to quickly run through what Jesus was saying here in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. He's saying that not everyone who makes a verbal confession of faith in Jesus Christ, not everyone who prays a sinner's prayer, will end up in heaven. Those who do make a verbal confession of faith, some of them will go to heaven, but it's only the ones who actually, what? Do the will of the Father in heaven. It's the good works again, isn't it, yeah? These are the ones who actually repent of their sins and turn to God. These are the ones who surrendered their will to God's will. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. And it also says that there will be many false converts. Many will say to me, yeah, in that day, Lord, haven't we, you know, done all these things? Now, they're going to have this satanic power to prophesy, cast out demons, and do many wonders in the name of Jesus. Because notice that Jesus doesn't deny that they've done these things. But he does not acknowledge that they were done by his power or in his name or according to his character. These things were done not according to the nature and character of God. So if they're not done in Jesus' name as claimed, then whose name were they done in? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers, notice that, his ministers, Satan's ministers, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So in my story, That man who said, I can play hockey and football at the same time, he was a minister of righteousness, but not really a minister of righteousness, was he? He was a counterfeit minister of righteousness. 
The hockey coach, he was a true minister of righteousness. He was telling me the truth. These people are not people who were saved but then walked away from God and lost their salvation. And Jesus says about these false converts, I never knew you. So it's not people who were walking with Christ and fell away. They actually never repented in the first place. He says, I never knew you. There was never a time that I knew you. So these false converts, these ones that Jesus asked to depart from him, are the ones who never repented of their sins and turned to God. Now Jesus describes them as you who continuously practice lawlessness. It's in the perfect tense, that verb. And it describes a continuous action. They did practice lawlessness and continue to practice lawlessness. There has never been a time when they didn't practice lawlessness. That means they continued to rebel against God. There was never a time when they actually repented of their sins. There was never a point in their life when they genuinely turned to God and surrendered their will to God's will. And so that's what James is emphasizing in our passage today, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Three times he says, verse 17, 20, and 26, faith without works is dead. You think he's trying to make a point? Maybe? Just a little bit? So, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Now, we don't have time to go into it now, but the key here is the Holy Spirit living in you. Is Jesus Christ in you? Because if he's not, then you don't belong to him. That's the test of faith. Now, James is not the only person to say that what we do determines if we're saved or not. The evidence of our salvation, right? Paul and John say the same thing. I'll read from Paul first in Ephesians 4, 17-29. With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. Throw off or put off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So in my little story, I talked about having to take the footy jumper off first before you put the hockey jumper on. And now he gives some practical application in Ephesians. He says, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So you see what good works look like? It's a repentant life. It's a changed life. 
The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 4-10, Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to, what? Take away our sins. Not just to forgive us our sins, but to take away our sins, to make us holy, righteous. And there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues, present tense, continuous action, to live in him will not sin continuously. Okay? Will not sin continuously. But anyone who keeps on sinning continuously does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, very important verse here, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. I'll read that one again. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, continuously without repentance, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family, do not make a practice of sinning. We fall down, we, we get back up, we repent, we keep on going. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. It's oh. <laughs> powerful, isn't it? So James is not all by himself, you know, saying that we're justified by our works. John's saying the same thing here. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. He's saying the same thing, just in different words. So, summary and conclusion. I've got a, a quote from John Corson. Arguing that faith without works is dead, the book of James so incensed Martin Luther that the reformer called it a veritable straw epistle that should be thrown into the Rhine River. <laughs> Yet James proves that faith without works is dead by pointing to the example of Abraham. It is not that Abraham was saved by taking eyes up, up the mountain to sacrifice him in obedience to God. No, James says that the work that saved Abraham took place years before that when he simply believed in God. That's verse 23. When was Abraham declared righteous? As James quotes Genesis 15.6, we understand that Abraham was declared righteous when he simply believed God would do what he said he would do when he told Abraham he would make his descendants more numerable than the sand on the seashore. Interestingly, Paul would also point to Abraham as proof that man is justified by faith apart from works. Romans 4.3 He continues, James and Paul are in full agreement because they both maintain that the moment Abraham simply believed God was the moment God imputed righteousness unto him. It was not faith and works that saves a man. It is not faith or works. It is faith that works. It's his living faith, yeah? All Abraham was doing at Mount Moriah was showing the reality of what had taken place in his life years earlier when he simply believed God. If your faith is real, it will show itself. How? By obeying the word of God and following the leading of the Lord, even though you may not understand where it will lead. At the time, 
Abraham could not have understood the significance of what he had done on Mount Moriah. But this side of Calvary, we see it was a perfect picture of what God the Father would do in sending his son to that same mountain to die for the sins of the world. You know you're truly born again when you find yourself obeying God. We're not saved by obedience, but our obedience proves we're saved, for true faith works. And again, I like this little statement there. It's not faith or works. It's not faith and works. It is faith that works. So, I'm going to read something from Matthew. I'm going to give Jesus the last word today. (laughs) Good works are the fruit of genuine relationship with God, of genuine repentance that leads to genuine salvation. And Jesus said it this way, Matthew 7, 15-20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Did men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Thank you, Father, for these fairly tough verses. They're very, very penetrating, very deep, Lord. They're showing us that what we do is a reflection of who we are. Help us to put that scripture into practice. Second no, Corinthians 13.5, I think it is. Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Is Christ living in you? Because if he is, then we will be producing the fruit of good works. But if he's not, then we won't. We have a dead faith that has not led to salvation. So Father, I thank you for the guarantee of our salvation. Once we are saved, we are always saved. And even if we do fall down, Lord, in your mercy and in your gentleness and in your grace, you pick us up, get us back on our feet, and off you go again. So I thank you that you are a loving, gentle Father. You know that we are dust. You know that we are going to mess up many times. But Lord, overall, you're not making us sinless, but you will make us to sin less. We are going to overcome, bit by bit, our sin nature and become more and more the person that you have created us to be. So help us to keep walking close to you. And I pray that we will shine your light in this dark world by our good deeds. Our deeds done out of love, motivated by gratitude for what you've already done for us. So we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.